Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Planning. My name is Father Patrick Briscoe, and I'm joined here today by Father Bonaventure Chapman. We're Howdy. celebrating day 15,974 of quarantine. And we're social distancing appropriately, as you can tell by the different artwork in our rooms. We are, we are far apart. I'm here in Providence, of course. Father Bonaventure is at the House of Studies in Washington, D.C., um, where he just completed the first year of his doctoral work. Oh, um, hurrah! How did things go with the transition online? How did that affect the shape of your research? Yeah, you know, to be honest, online education for PhD students is about the best you could have it in terms of like transitioning because we're all really self-motivated. In philosophy, you're doing generally studying texts, so you're just discussing things. And it, we already knew each other because you started two-thirds in. I imagine like for elementary school, this was an absolute disaster. For so many of our listeners who are elementary school teachers or secondary school teachers, uh, God bless you. I can't imagine how you're doing this. But for, for us, it, was, it worked surprisingly well. Even the professors who hadn't used a lot of technology before, um, it worked well. The mathematical logic course was a little harder because... The board was, uh, the professor was using like a kid's chalkboard from his house. And they just, you can't do heavy logical proofs on, on, a, on a chalkboard that has about. Would he just like hold it up on the camera? It was on a little easel in the back. It was on kind of his easel. Um, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a little bit, there we go. Uh, but yeah, other than that, but so the transition worked out pretty well. I imagine also though, it was interesting. I guess put it this way. When you get out of the normal rhythm of things, then you're reminded about certain things you took for granted about with those activities. So I remember when I first got a Kindle or when I first used a Kindle, it never occurred to me that the act of reading is such a physical act about right. holding a book and knowing right. where, like where you are in the book, for instance, just knowing that, Hey, I'm only 50 pages in roughly being able to flip like 150 pages immediately. Whereas with a Kindle, you're kind of scrolling. You never know exactly where you are. I know there's a number, but it's not the same as the physical holding of it. Um, and so I learned a lot about what it was to read a book by not by reading it in an e-method or trying to read an e-method and feeling that out. And I think teaching like this online stuff has made it apparent that how much of the classroom's dynamics is just in the physical presence of the other people in the room uh, that allows you not having to shout over people, that allows you to like be engaged in a common project as opposed to kind of like sharing a screen together. So it was interesting that it, it went from the, the internet learning remind just brought up issues that I hadn't thought about what it meant to learn in a classroom in a, a normal setting. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, in my, in my own experience this semester, I'll say that in, in one of my classes, I had a, had a really easy transition to online learning. I, uh, pre-recorded lectures and distributed them to my students with YouTube links and they wrote reflections um, and comments back on the lectures and, and that that was basically a contemporary correspondence course yeah fairly straightforward not a lot of bells and whistles um, the other course however was a course um, that Father Bonaventure has actually taught as well um, so both, both of us have both of us have been through this method and when we got the announcement that we were going online for the rest of the semester, I was so upset. Uh, it was just, it was actually depressed and saddened because I couldn't, uh, I couldn't let go of how difficult it was going to be to transition this particular class to 
online learning. So you're building, you're building up dr- drama and tension. People are wondering, <laughs> what is this class? What is, this what is involved class? in this? Is there eating involved? Uh, What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was trying to teach home ec uh, yeah. online, but, uh, but it was, it, 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 it you know, it, it was complicated for various reasons. So, um, but the bottom of it, why don't you, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about, um, reacting to the past about, uh, about what it is. And then, um, so, so that's what we want to share with you today. Actually, we want, we want to talk about this course, um, reacting to the past about its method of learning. And then we want to engage, um, in further philosophical reflection about the nature and meaning of history, um, through the work of professor Collingwood, a noted, um, historian and philosopher from England. So, and this might we'll get sound to that in the later part. Yeah, this might sound entirely uninteresting because you think, well, I'm not going to take the class. Who cares? And like philosophical reflection, R.G. Collingwood. I don't even know who that is. Who gives a rip about that? But it, believe me, um, hopefully the insights you'll get from this it will be a very important understanding of what it means to be a human being in a world that where we don't think much about being human beings today. So I think that'll there'll be some great practical reflections. So the course, though. Um, so everyone thinks history is boring, basically everyone except historians and people like history, but everyone else thinks history is really boring and going through school, I think, right? Just memorizing facts, these sort of things and dates and places and times and all of that. Um, so to make history exciting, there's a, or more exciting to everyone, there's a methodology of pedagogy uh, called reacting to the past. And it started in Barnard College, I think. Um, and it, what it does is instead of teaching, say, the French Revolution or the Galilean Revolution or the American Revolution or the Darwin, uh, Darwin Scopes monkey trial thing, any historical event, instead of teaching as like facts or something, the job is to have the students actually step into the roles of the, that time period. So for instance, in the French Revolution, if you're, if you're studying the French Revolution, you're studying it not passively in the sense of picking up data and information and gathering things and then spewing them out on a paper, but you're actively engaged in the process of arguing for the French Revolution as the king or Commander Lafayette or um, Emmanuel Size or any of the characters that would have been in that area. So the different factions debating the street people, the rioters, uh, the nobles, the church, the clergy on both sides of the issue, the Jacobins, Fouillants, and, and, and everything in between, the conservatives, the monarchists, all this. The idea is that you read the documents uh, of the French Revolution, but not as, again, passive recipients, third person kind of perspective, but as first person. So you're reading the Declaration of Rights of Man, you're reading Rousseau, you're reading um, Edmund Burke as a part of your milieu, as if they were speaking to you in your current situation, and then you're going to deploy their arguments and your arguments and your reflections in actual debate with your students who are playing their own roles in this particular, what's called a game. So what's the value of it? Well, the value of it is that you're engaged in the historical enterprise from the first person perspective, such that it's informing and making the facts, you could say, or the events or the history or the dates or the names real. They have to be something you know and you, you know your way around. So it's, an, it's a real engaged, active, first-person shooter kind of role of, of uh, class. If that's, and uh, so I taught this a, couple, two year, a year or two years ago, and Father Patrick Mary Briscoe taught it this year. So he just finished up this semester. And now you can already imagine why going online with this makes it really difficult 
Because the idea is you're in a classroom and all the participants are shouting over top of each other in the parliament sessions or in the, the front national assembly sessions and debating and there's, there's, there's papers being thrown and all these sort of things, gavels, what have you. So, um, what, yeah, what, what did you think about the, that, does that fair description of the method there? Right. Uh, no, certainly. And um, I, I, so one thing that we emphasized, um, both Father Bonaventure and I, by the way, taught this with the same colleague, Dr. Rick Berry, oh, yeah. who is a prince among men, if ever there were one. I, I, we could have an episode about what a great guy Dr. Berry Hey, he won the teaching award for, the, uh, for in creative teaching for this, this course when I taught it there. So he's a, shout he's, out to him. He's, a, he's a, just a, a really incredible member of the faculty of Providence College and a, a great person to teach with. Um, so one of the things that Dr. Berry and I emphasized, I'm sure you did the same Father Bonaventure when you were teaching with him, uh, was that we kept saying over and over and over again to our students, you are your character. You wake up in the morning, you think your character's thoughts, you go to bed in the evening, you, you, you leave the day with your character's woes, uh, just, <laughs> just adopt as much as you can this historical person. And I think um, what this allows, because I've taught a few regular seminar classes in the core curriculum, I've had three sections of Western Civ uh, before using this method. Uh, one of the realities of seminar style education is that many students are just afraid to voice what they're actually thinking in the seminar setting. They are. They don't want to. They don't want to appear stupid. Mm -hmm. They don't want to bring real questions to the table, and and um, they they don't want to be thought of as less by the professor. So th there's just a real hesitancy, and it can be very difficult to get them to buy in, um, even when you work. Um, very hard at it. But what putting on another role allows is for them to put distance between an idea and their own person. So they don't, they, you know, they're not, they're not putting their own self at risk by exploring the consequences of something. So that, that's what the method allows chiefly. Okay. Um, I, I think that's the, that's one of the main benefits of it is that students can voice views um, that are, that are not actually their own. Uh, and do so with confidence because you've just got this role. You know, you were just assigned to be this person like everyone else was, and you're not you're not putting as much of your own self on the line. So just a, co a comment about the method. Now taking it online though, because of the dynamic of the classroom, that was really that was really a big concern because sessions could get very lively. In the Galileo game, there's a secret heretic that reveals uh, himself, and it's very dramatic. For example, um, in the uh, French Revolution game that we just played there, the mob is supposed to uh, uh, interrupt and riot, and this is part of what um, causes consternation in the National Assembly as Lafayette and Bailly try and um, keep peace in the city of Paris. So, okay, so you have a, a kind of um, very vibrant classroom dynamic where all kinds of things are happening that don't happen in normal seminar classes. Uh, but that said, with the meeting capabilities of uh, Zoom and, um, we use, the, we use the collaborative app Slack, which most people use for the workplace. Um, between those two things, we were able to create enough of a kind of common setting, despite the distance, um, and despite, dis, despite uh, being limited to online, that they were still able to present yeah. enough of their character to really inter interact with those ideas. I think one of my favorite parts about this experience was, well, two is that uh, getting into stepping into the roles the, there were some guys who you would never think clearly they're just taking this course because they have to take this course. Um, you know, and they're, they're you know, they're the particular type of guy and they're, they're uh, God love them. They're great guys. But, uh, I remember talking to one of them afterwards and, uh, and he said, yeah, 
I was walking around after the gym. I was coming back from the gym and I was looking up, it was during the Galileo thing. He was a conservative cardinal for the Galileo game. It was against, uh, against um, Galileo. And so I was looking up and I've been working on my arguments so hard and thinking about it so often. I thought to myself, my gosh, I don't know, maybe it's right. Maybe it is geocentric. Maybe, <laughs> you know, uh, and that was, <laughs> that is delightful. That was just, that was, that was absolutely phenomenal. And that was not, he was not the only one who mentioned that. And they also like would use their names. So one of our best guys was, uh, uh, Tim Sears, who was actually on Jeopardy this year. Um, and he was, uh, uh, he was Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Bieber, Francis Bieber. Uh, and, he stepped in his role so well that like, that's what he was known around campus by anyone in his class. They'd always be Bieber, what's up, you know? So th- just to step on those roles, that was, that was huge. That was huge. Um, yeah. But so it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful method and a number of colleges are, are taking it up and it, it just allows you to interact um, with people and with the ideas. The ideas are not just something on the page, but there's something, and you could think, well, that's, you know, it sounds like play acting. People are always calling this like the games course or the play course or something. And I resisted this because for me, it was this, once I saw how this course went, once uh, Dr. Dr. Barry mentioned it and talked about it, I thought this is, this is a philosophically rich way of thinking. And it's the, in some ways, the best way of thinking about how humans interact and what it means to be human, right? And that's because I tied this course... Right with um, a man who we mentioned his name before is R.G. Collingwood. Is this a good time to bring this up or should we take Absolutely. a break? Absolutely, let's go for it. Okay, yeah. um, so, so R.G. Collingwood, you may not be, uh, dear listeners, you may not be familiar with, <laughs> with him. Uh, R.G. Collingwood was a Oxford Don in the early 20th century. So he was a, a big man, he was a chair, metaphysical, metaphysics chair uh, in Oxford University in the early 20th century. A real Renaissance man actually. Uh, so he, he was an a archeologist by training as well, professional one, who worked on Roman Britain, discovered Hadrian's Wall, did a lot of work. And he did a lot of his, but his philosophical work was mainly in the area of metaphysics. Um, so thinking about being and his own view of this. But then he shifted or made some moves towards history. He thought history was really important. So if you know anything about Collingwood from this, you probably will have known him from this book called The Idea of History, um, which was a, a collection. And he wrote on history, and he had some particular things to say. His idea was this, that all history is the history of thought. He thought all history was the history of thought. So, and he contrasted the history of thought with what he called a scissors and paste history. And the kind of, well, dialectic I set up earlier between third person and first person perspective. So third person learning about random facts and dates and maps and things versus engaging in what this course did, first person kind of history stuff, ideas and, and, and strategies and that, is maps roughly onto, at least I saw it mapping, roughly onto Collingwood's distinction between scissors and paste history and, and history of thought, history of thought. And so it's worth maybe just mentioning quickly, scissors and paste history was his idea of history as these different events that happen. And then you kind of take your scissors and you cut out the important bits. So like, imagine all of history as this running kind of narrative and then you want to know, like, what about the American Revolution? And so, you know, you care about, like, Benjamin Franklin's parts. You cut out his little life parts. And you cut out George Washington's parts. But there's also, like, a farm in the middle of nowhere, and he's doing something. But he's not really involved, so you don't, you don't worry about him. You don't paste him back in. So the idea is that if you tell a history of the American Revolution, what you do is you look at all the events that happened, as if you were kind of God looking above things, and you take the important ones, and then you just kind of paste them in a collage, and there you have it. There you have the history of the American Revolution. That's, and that's what history is. It's just grabbing things, pasting them together, and putting them in order. And then you've got this nice collage you put on the wall and you look at. Right? That's his, 
That's his, what he calls scissors and paste history. And the problem he has with that is he thinks it's actually not history at all. It's actually like natural science. So it's treating human actions and human events as if they were just physical events in the world. Because you'll notice that you don't have to say anything about intentions, motivations, goals, desires, fears, thoughts. Nothing has to be said about that when you're doing that history. You're just collecting facts. Um, So why did he think this is important to move past this history? Because in the early 20th century, he said, we're really good at organizing events and physical atoms, these kind of things. Look at the nuclear projects, look at our, our technologies, all this kind of stuff that he was, he was looking at. Um, died right before World War II, so nuclear stuff is still a little bit off them. But technology is exploding, sciences are exploding. And he says, we're really good at that, really good. But he said, if you look at the human side of things, he said, we're actually really bad at that. And he mm. didn't know the worst of it for the 20th century. I mean, the body oh, no, bags I, piled yeah. up. And his his Uh, I guess prophecy in a way was if we continue to treat humans as if they're natural atoms to be reorganized and and organized and pasted and cut and all this, then we're going to run into disaster because for him, humans are not the same as, as just material elements. So his so his claim was we've gotten good at the natural sciences, but we actually have to have a science of man, a human science, which is not just like the natural sciences, but grabs human stuff. It's actually a different kind of thinking. It's a different right. way of approaching right. humans. And that's what he has, the history of thought. Right. You want to jump in on, on this? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm just so excited about it and animated about it. Uh, and I love the class so much for this reason, because I think this is what a true liberal arts education does for people, is it makes them think in a real way, what does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be living in society? What does it mean to stand for this or that thing? What does it mean to assess how other people are interacting with it? And that's what that's what Collingwood's um, approach to history demands that we take seriously. That history is not just the rehearsal of things that have happened. Um, it's not watching films. Um, that that history that history is taking ideas seriously and considering how they formed us and shaped us and where they lead. Mm-hmm. So let's pause there um, and take a short break um, because we you know we've already we've already just. Uh, dropped our own nuclear bomb by making this claim on an interpretation of history that all history is the history of thought, all history is the history of ideas. Um, And we'll continue to unpack that when we get back after this. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. Well, welcome back. Father Bonaventure has just been introducing us and opening up to us um, the thought of Professor R.G. Collingwood, uh, his understand, his particular understanding of history. So let's go a little bit further mm-hmm. with this. Father Bonaventure, you've yeah. been saying that all history is the history of thought, all history is the history of ideas, um, and that this, uh, this has important consequences for how we should study history. So we're trying mm-hmm. to connect that with uh, a method that, that we used um, teaching in, in a class at Providence College. Um, but, but where can we go? How can we go a little bit further with Collingwood? Let's, so let's go. So remember the scissors and paste history is history as just putting together events and standing off third person. But he says, no, history is the history of thought. And you might think, oh, that's a history of like ideas, like what people are thinking, some weird mentalist thing. But he doesn't mean that. He, he just means that to understand how humans act, not how atoms move, 
that you can do from a third person thing. But how humans act, you need to understand that humans aren't material and that they have desires and that their thoughts are what actually drive their actions. In a sense, right. they shape their actions. So yeah. in a sense, it's, it's like um, he gives an example of, as an archaeologist, he gives the example between uh, the difference between, uh, what's he called it, um, uh, paleography thing? No, no, um, paleontology, I think, and archaeology or geology and archaeology. So geology mm. is like you just treat things you come across as matter, kind of rocks. Is that igneous? Is it, um, you know, is it volcanic? What kind of, you're talking this matter stuff about it, scientific things about a chemical composition. So geologists are looking at rocks, right? And, and, right, and right. So if a geologist comes across things, he treats them qua, he treats them according to their kind of composite, chemical composition. But an archaeologist isn't interested in the chemical, chemical composition. He's interested in not rocks, but artifacts. So when he picks up a piece of pottery, for instance, a piece of clay, you could say it this way, a geologist picks up a piece of clay and says, oh, this is clay. An archaeologist picks up that same piece of clay and says, this is a shard of a pot. And the geologist might say, no, that's clay. But the archaeologist says, well, yeah, it, that on the chemical composition level, that's clay. But I'm not asking questions about the clay based on its clayness. I'm asking about who it was shaped by, what it was for. I want to know what this thing really is. It's not just clay. It's a pot. Right. It's a piece of a pot. And to do that, what he's doing is looking for intentions, for designs. Right. He's trying to look for the thoughts that, in a sense, are embedded in this particular thing. So he looks at a pot and he says, this is, must be for drinking because it has this shape in it and it has this way and it's got this art on it. So they must be, maybe it's a ritual piece. There's a, a fullness to it that a geologist isn't interested in at all. And that's the difference between the science, natural sciences and what Collingwood wants called human sciences. It's an archeological project in a way. Now he thinks history is all of this way because when he wants to understand humans and how we interact, he doesn't care about us qua chemical composition. Like it's not just looking at us, a bunch of atoms wander around. Oh, yeah, if two people get together, you know, and they, and they, they collide. And then they, <laughs> sometimes they merge. And then other times things are produced. And you're like, well, what is that about? And it's like, oh, people have fallen in love. That's two different descriptions of the same thing. But obviously, you're not going to talk about, ask someone like, hey, do you want to go and collide and kind of get together and, uh, you know, mesh atoms later? No one's going to say that. They're going to, you know, say, do you want to go on a date and have a cup of coffee or something, right? Different levels, same description. Now, Collingwood says, that's how we do history. And he says, historical knowledge as opposed to scientific knowledge. There's a quote from an autobiography he wrote, which I think is fantastic. It says, historical knowledge is the reenactment in the historian's mind of the thought whose history he is studying. Historical knowledge is the reenactment in the historian's mind of the thought whose history he is studying. What he means by that is when the historian, Collingwood or any of us, are studying an event that happened in the past, a human action, a human event. Um, what we're trying to do is not look at the composition, but try to reenact in our minds what it would have been like to be in the situation so that we can figure out what is actually happening. In some ways, it's not actually that different than detective work. When a detective goes and tries to figure out, well, what happened here? He doesn't just look at the facts. He tries to construct in his mind, what would be the plan? What kind of intentions would someone have? What, what, why would they do this or that? Or what would they want to do? Or who do they know? What, who is the, all these things that are beyond the physical nature, but actually to do with thoughts. Collingwood's claim is that's, that's what all history is because that's what humans are. We are, we are thinking beings that instantiate matter. 
you know, I've got a hylomorphism kind of stuff going on here. The soul informs the matter such that we shape the world around us and our bodies and our interactions based on our thoughts in the way that the thoughts of a designer shape a piece of clay. Um, did you want to give the Nelson example? Or do you want me to give the Nelson example? Yeah, no, I just, I would, that's what I was just going to prompt. I mean, I think, I think the, the very demonstrative example of this is uh, his reference to Lord Nelson, uh, which is so. He, so Admiral Admiral Nelson um, is a famous British British admiral, and uh, and died on uh, in, during one of the sea battles, and particularly because he was wearing special garb and his medals and all of this sort of thing. Um, and covered so he was with a, decorations. Covered covered with decorations, and so he's a clear target to any sort of low lying scum that wants to shoot an admiral. Um, uh, so clear target. And one of his officers says, you know, Lord Nelson, you need to take off your, take off your, your medals and be less conspicuous. Right. Um, and, and Nelson says his famous saying um, is in honor. I won them in honor. I will die with them. Is that he, he had this, he said, I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not going to take these off. Right. And uh, because of who I am now, Collingwood says, if I want to study Lord Nelson, if I want to study him, I can't just write down a piece of paper. Oh, well, Nelson then said, in honor, I won them, in honor, I will die with them. To really know what that means, I have to think and enter into his mindset to try to reenact what it would be to say that kind of thing. Uh, Collingwood goes on. He says, when I understand what Nelson meant by saying, in honor, I won them, in honor, I will die with them, what I'm doing is to think myself into the position of being all covered with decorations and exposed at short range to the musketeers in the enemy's tops and being advised to make myself a less conspicuous target. I ask myself the question, shall I change my coat and reply in those words? Understanding the words means thinking for myself what Nelson thought when he spoke them. That is that this is not a time to take off my ornaments of honor for the sake of saving my life. Unless I were capable, perhaps only transiently, of thinking that of myself, Nelson's words would remain meaningless to me. And I think that's the, that's the key is that unless, right. unless you can sympathetically embody that thought as best you can uh, with all the sort of adumbration you need to make through time in this, but unless you can embody that, you don't really understand what those words mean. Now, this has such dramatic ramifications for dealing with human beings. This is why this is not an abstract conversation with us, as I mentioned at the start. But because oftentimes when we're just discussing with other human beings in our daily life, we're debating, we're, we're strategizing, we're talking, we're conversing, we're trying to figure out what people are up to. It's not enough just to quote their words. I mean, this is in political discourse today. Someone says this, someone says this, someone says this. And then you respond to those like Twitter feeds, those little, those little lines. <laughs> and... 160 no, characters. Collingwood says that's treating people like they're just kind of piece, pieces of clay right, and treating them right, chemically. What you need right. to do is try to figure out what would it mean to say, to think the thought of those words and to say those words from that person. And unless you can do that, then you won't really understand that person. It'll remain opaque to you. Now, that doesn't mean that just by thinking you will agree with them. You might actually with Lord Nelson think, you know, honor is not that super important compared to getting shot on the, on, the, on the deck of a ship. Like you could have debate whether honor is the most important thing at that point, whether he should have taken off his coat. But you'll never understand Lord Nelson unless you try to think what it was for him to think that and what it meant to think that thought and why he would and step into his own shoes and his own ornamented suit.
Right. I just wanted to connect that to um, to our class again. So like we, we played these two games. One was based on the trial of Galileo and another one was based on the French Revolution. And one of the things that was very interesting about the Galileo trial, one of the things that um, I think it actually afforded our students was the opportunity um, to consider what it would mean for the scriptures to have been so important in one's life and so fundamental. Because otherwise you, re you read the story of Galileo and you say, oh, he's just proposing a different reading of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not until they, they look at the context, they see the rise, uh, the rise of Protestant nations in Northern Europe, the great separation of the church. Um, they think a little bit about, uh, about the church's response to the rise of Protestantism. It, it's not until they begin to contextualize it within their own uh, debating and their own role as a character that they understand, okay, this isn't the sort of thing that one just moves, one just moves past in a few seconds. Oh, you know, the trial of Galileo. Oh, that was a debate about, that was a debate about the scriptures. Well, okay, but what did that mean to the people of that time? Yeah, it's like the, um, you know, not just like, again, thinking of, of these debates as, and any debates as like collecting a bunch of sentence propositions and then like trying to square those sentence propositions with what are the best ones. I remember talking with, when I was, when I was teaching this with the Gal, on the Galileo one, I was trying to make, make clear the person was coming in, they were talking about um, uh, the Galileo side of things about, you know, obviously he's right about this. And I said, well, look, you know, you're debating against people, the conservative cardinals, who believe in the doctrines of the Eucharist that, you know, Christ is present substantially, but he's, but the bread is still, the accidents of bread are, are there. So there's a difference between substance and accidents, appearance and reality and that sort of thing. Um, and you have to realize, and you should realize that if you think through your position on Galileo at this point, he denies in certain points that there are such things as secondary qualities, which are accidents. He denies they exist. There are only primary qualities. There's only substance. And I said, I want you to just think about that for a second. If you're on that other person's side, what you're being told is, if I take on Galileo, at least as far as you present him to me, it means I have to deny the doctrine of the Eucharist. Now, I'm a Catholic cardinal who has been raised in the faith and trusts the faith, and you have this kind of mathematical, weird scientific, like telescope kind of view that may be right, it's may a, be wrong. It's a Dutch toy, folks. You've got this hypothesis about something that no one's really sure about. So you want me to give up my faith uh, which I know to be true, um, or for in favor of like a scientific hypothesis that a few people believe. Not only that, but if you start going down this road, you don't have for for Galileo. You can start moving in the atomist direction, so that there's really nothing difference between between you and a chair, except the the organization of particular particles. Those are a lot of commitments. So when the cardinal, so when you, when I said when you're arguing against these other, when these cardinals on the conservative side of things, you need to realize you need to step and try to think like them because they've got a lot of different positions than you, and they matter and they mean something. So that they're going to hear things very differently than you. But you have to do that. You have to think like them. You have to try to step into their thoughts as best you can. Um, and just that exercise. And she said, she said, oh, do they know all these things? Because, and I said, well, if they don't, they're not doing their homework because they should know the minute you raise this, they will, because she's like, I don't know how I would possibly defeat that. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. One of, one of the things that's so incredible about this, uh, about this proposal, that his, historical knowledge is the reenactment in the historian's mind of the thought whose history he is studying means that we, that, that we as human beings, um, 
have to be more than the sum of past historical events too. Um, that there's a, there's a way, there's a way that we are composed of, um, in a, not just an alignment uh, of atoms, like you were giving the example of the chair just now. We, we, can't th we can't build an analogy between that composition of uh, past historical events and our own selves, but Collingwood is inviting us to think more deeply about the, the meaning of human life and who we are as human persons uh, by this particular understanding of history, right? So for, for us as Christians, this, this means something very, very, very profound. Um, we can think of Nelson not taking off his decorations uh, we should be tempted to think, uh, we should be invited rather, not tempted. We, we are invited to think of the martyrs. Why wouldn't the martyrs just offer incense? Um, I'm thinking of the, the, the martyrs of the first, first, uh, first centuries of Christianity. Why wouldn't they just offer the incense to the Roman gods and be done with them? Why, yeah. why, why would the missionaries be willing to go in, you know, in, in the 16th and 17th century? Why would the missionaries be willing to go to the ends of the earth and, and, attempt to build uh, a, a way of life among, among peoples they had never known. Th these are all invitations uh, to, to know more deeply the Lord and ourselves. And the, and the interesting part is that it allows you to, in a sense, um, jump historical periods. So history is not this thing that's- Yeah, true, in, I just did that. Yeah. But exactly, yeah, the, but, but by calling because we can, because our thought is, has the same capabilities as their thoughts. So it's not like they're this distance isolated thing that's, you know, as we sometimes think of history in terms of like distance, like it's 20 miles away and I can't reach that physically. But because of the thought, because of thoughts, we are, there's no space and time involved here. So you can rethink, you can reenact to a, to a degree, to a degree, because we share the same common, common human nature, the thoughts at any given time, if you work hard enough at it. And what this allows you again is it's interesting. It's kind of like, a new a, a new way of reading scripture, and you can test this out, uh, as, as Father Petrmeri is talking about. Uh, whereas the Ignatian method is like going back and thinking about all the details, like the sounds and all these kind of physical things. The Collingwoodian method is kind of go back and you you hear the characters to try to step into that role and try to think, what would it have been like to think the thought of Peter when he says, "I'll never deny you," but know that he's going to deny. What was that? What was it? What would we like to think? to say that you weren't going to deny someone, but have the ability to deny them. And how does that thought shape you? Because right. that's the important part here is it's not just a one way street. It's not just that you're going in to think the other thoughts, you can kind of sort something out, but by thinking the other's thought, you can actually train your own thoughts. Like maybe Lord Nelson's thought, if you understand it and grasp it about honor, actually is a thought that you should have. It's a thought that should come spontaneous to you in different situations. Maybe the thinking like the martyrs is something that actually is a good thought, not just historically, like, again, third person kind of, what do they think and what do they mean? But actually, I want to mean these same things in this new situation. That's right. So that you can actually go into the past and get ways of relating to people in the future and yourself today. That's the power of it. Yeah. As Collingwood says, he says it this way. This, this is such a, a great quote. If what the historian knows is past thoughts, and if he knows them by rethinking them himself, it follows that the knowledge he achieves by historical inquiry is not knowledge of his situation as opposed to knowledge of himself. It is a knowledge of his situation, which is at the same time knowledge of himself. Yeah. And that's, again, Cohen was beautiful about this in that he doesn't, it's not a difference between like events and ideas 
like the way we usually think in some dualistic thought, like there's physical events out there and then there's mental ideas. It's, it's a, it's the, the, the history, the thought shaping the actions. So thought and action is being shaped because that's the kind of beings we are just in the way that the pottery is shaped by ideas or even more so as spiritual beings, as intellectual beings. Um, that's calling calling what's idealism here is that, yeah, we, our actions are our thoughts are actions. These are, these are intertwined. You can't separate out with a strainer or something, how someone acted physically and how someone thought that they're actually combined, which of course became a really big uh, project in Catholic moral theology in the 20th century following GEM Anscombe, who focused on not on mental causes of, of beliefs, but intentions. So her whole action theory. And this got this whole idea of anyone who's listening in, in favor of neo Aristotelianism and that kind of thing, going back into, into looking at how we act and the issues of like intention. What do I intend to do in these, in, and how that reduces morality. That's right up this alley, treating human interactions not as events in the physical world, but as actions with intentions and thoughts behind them and seeing them as together in that way. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this little foray today into uh, philosophical reflections on history. I, I was delighted. Father Bonaventure, of course, is one who introduced me to Collingwood. I, I can't say that I found him on my own. Uh, but I, I have been delighted to get to know him, to think about him, to realize how, uh, how these uh, events, just even within the, in the context of teaching this class, how teaching these two events has shaped my own appropriation and rethinking of history. Uh, it's been an extraordinary project. So I hope that uh, today's uh, episode will help you to do that as you continue to explore history uh, in your own right. Um, can, I just, and can I just close on... Of course, please. Tied, of course, with St. Paul. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to think the thoughts of Christ. And by doing that, we become conformed with Christ. So this is, you know, yeah, as Father Patrick Murray said, to take this into your prayer life as well. And when you read the scriptures and you hear them on Sunday or wherever we do, to start to reenact them in a sense in your mind so that you can conform to, to him and his, and his life. That was fantastic. Well, I have nothing better to say than that. Um, we, we hope that the podcast helps you pray. That's the goal. God's planting is about thinking about God, uh, talking about God. Um, if, you're, if you like what you're hearing, please share the episodes, even if you don't like what you're hearing. You know, maybe share it as a penance. We propose this, we propose this idea. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe don't tell other people you don't like it if you're sharing it as a penance. Um, please know of our prayers for you. Uh, God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.